seven. This is the ninth podcast in the series from the IP team at Stevens and Bolton, in which we're talking all about patent and know-how licensing with a particular life sciences focus. I'm Charlie Tillett. I'm a partner in the IP team and I head up our life sciences group here at Stevens and Bolton. And for this episode, I am joined by two brilliant colleagues in our IP team, Tom Collins. Hello. And Kate Maguire. Hello. Our previous podcast in this series, this series has covered a variety of key areas relating to license agreements, covering aspects such as defining the scope of the deal at the outset, maintaining control of IP whilst allowing a licensee the commercial freedom it needs, payment terms and common pitfalls, termination issues, warranties and indemnities and disputes. Today we are focusing on a really hot topic, that of the Unified Patent Court and how this impacts licensing. There's a lot of information out there and a lot of chat at the moment about the Unified Patent Court, given its imminent launch. And it's a complex area which we're all feeling our way a little bit with as we come to grips with the new system. We touched on the UPT in our episode eight of our podcast series with a general overview of what it's all about. But today we wanted to give you a brief update on the key latest developments and think in more detail specifically about how the UPC is relevant in patent license agreements and to share some nuggets of information as to what a licensor and a licensee need to have in mind. It's important that European patent proprietors, licensees and also parties to research, collaboration and joint venture agreements understand how these changes in the system will affect their businesses. So a brief recap on the UPC, what is it all about? The Unified Patent Court or UPC is a new pan-European patent court system, which is open to accession by all EU member states. So unfortunately that doesn't include the UK. The object is to make it easier and more cost-effective to litigate patents in the EU. In addition to the new court, a European unitary patent or UP will be introduced. This is a single patent covering all of the participating EU 27 member states, rather like the EU trademark, but for patents. There's a system of opting out, which provides a transitional period in which patent owners may opt their patents out of the jurisdiction of the new court. Although you can opt out, to clarify, there's no such thing as an opt-in, All European patents in the participating member states will automatically become subject to the jurisdiction of the new court unless they are opted out. So this means, for example, that on day one of the new court, a third party could commence proceedings for revocation before the UPC, and it would then be too late to opt the relevant patent out. They'll be stuck in the jurisdiction of the new court. This means that patent owners who wish to opt out any patents should do so in the three month sunrise period before the new court becomes operational. And just as an aside, a particular risk in the life sciences sector might be one for an originator company where they're concerned that a generic company could commence a revocation action in the central division and threatening central revocation. Um, But after literally decades in the making, the UP and the UPC are now anticipated to go live on the 1st of June 2023, when the UPC agreement or the UPCA is planned to enter into force. And currently it looks as though the system and all the related preparatory work appears to be on track for these dates. 
As was widely anticipated, the start of the sunrise period was postponed by two months from the 1st of January to the 1st of March 2023. And in turn, entry into force of the UPCA was also postponed by two months from the 1st of April to the 1st of June 2023. And we understand that the postponement was to allow users to prepare themselves for the strong authentication which will be required to access the case management system and to sign documents. So with that intro recap, um, we're not going to go into exhaustive detail in this episode on all things relevant to the UPC because we'd be here for a long time, but we wanted to put things into context. And by way of a useful reminder, Kate, please can you outline the pros in favour of the UPC? Thanks, Charlie. Yes, of course, there are several key advantages of the new system worth noting. In fact, you already mentioned one in your introduction, which is that the whole purpose of the UPC is to make it easier and more cost effective to litigate patents in the EU. So the nature of pan-EU enforcement means that it will be possible for unitary patent owners to enforce their rights by way of a single infringement action at the UPC. And this single action will, in most cases, be more cost effective than bringing multiple infringement actions across various national courts. And in terms of efficiency, it's currently envisaged that first instance proceedings before the UPC will be concluded within around 12 months, which is quicker than most national courts. Okay, so the idea is that we therefore remove the need for lengthy and costly strategic planning and individual battles in the various jurisdictions. Yes, absolutely. And perhaps most importantly, the harmonisation of patent law and procedure across the participating member states is a significant advantage of the UPC system. And this is because it will provide clarity for patent owners when it comes to enforcing and defending their rights. In particular, the UPC will offer a range of pan-EU remedies to unitary patent owners, including damages, preliminary and final injunctions and freezing orders. It's also hoped that there will be more options for enforcement through the Unified Patent Court, for example, by making it easier for patentees to demonstrate infringement of method claims where individual steps of the method have been performed in different member states. Similarly, cross-border activities that wouldn't constitute indirect infringement of a bundle of national patents, for example, exporting from Denmark for use in Sweden, would be considered indirect infringement of a unitary patent because those activities are effectively occurring within the same jurisdiction. And finally, it's worth mentioning that the unitary patents will remove the need for complex and costly national validation procedures because the EPO will effectively act as a one-stop shop, allowing for a simple and convenient validation process with just a single renewal fee payable to the EPO to maintain the UP in future. The centrally administrated UP system also helps patentees to avoid various costs that may otherwise be incurred in dealing with multiple national patent offices, jurisdiction-specific agents, and meeting official translation requirements in each relevant country. Okay, so we're aiming for a more streamlined and hopefully cost-effective option. Thanks, Kate. On the flip side then, there are some issues to be aware of which are not so favourable for the UPC system. Tom, can you explain what these are? Thanks, Charlie. Yes, despite the many advantages of the system that Kate's helpfully outlined, I think some of the main downsides are that there are obviously limits in the geographical scope of the system and a UP doesn't cover all the countries which are party to the UPC, so it may not cover some of the key jurisdictions for your business. For example, non-EU EP states such as the UK and Turkey 
non-participating states such as Spain and Poland and non-signatory states such as Croatia will fall outside of the geographical scope. And UPs will also not cover any EU country that's not ratified at the time that the request for unitary effect is registered at the EPA. So that's obviously going to be a potential challenge in terms of the overall kind of strategic considerations um, when, when you're looking to get coverage and enforcing the patents as well. Right. OK, so although many jurisdictions are covered, isn't quite the panacea that some are hoping for and there may still need to be some parallel actions in certain jurisdictions. That's right. Yeah. And I think another thing to be aware of is, and perhaps most significantly, is the Central Litigation Forum, which I know you touched upon briefly in your introduction, Charlie. And essentially, that means the validity of the patent can be attacked at the EPC centrally. And unlike opposition, this possibility remains for the lifetime of the patent. So it's always going to be a risk that's going to sit there. So the UP is going to be at risk of revocation across multiple countries all in one go. And as well as that, the UPs can only be enforced in the UPC, which may not necessarily be the most cost effective enforcement mechanism compared to some of the national courts. Obviously, this will depend on the nature of the business and whether you need to enforce the patents in multiple jurisdictions at the same time. I think it's probably worth saying as well that since the UPC has not yet opened its doors, it's also unclear to what extent it is going to be more patentee friendly than the national courts and time will tell, I think, on many of those issues. Agreed. So there are, there are lots of unknowns about the court and the approach it might take at the moment, which is obviously causing uncertainty for some. And, and in particular, I think the pharma sector is approaching this with, with caution. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right, Charlie. And so in terms of other possible downsides to the system, I mean, in terms of cost effectiveness, it, it's, gonna, it's going to be very circumstantial, but where you're looking to validate in four or more EPC contracting states, then, then it is likely to be um, cost valuable. But for those that would normally be seeking protection, perhaps two or three states, then actually the UP isn't necessarily going to be a cheaper or more cost effective solution for the business. And I guess building on from that, there's, there's a loss of the renewal fee flexibility. So you can't just cherry pick which jurisdictions you want the protection in and actually a single renewal fee will be payable for all of the participating states. So it's not going to be possible to just simply drop protection in a particular jurisdiction over the lifetime of the patent for particular markets that actually turn out to be less significant for the business. So this might actually result in there being higher costs towards the end of the patent life and and that's obviously something that's going to potentially be costly to the business over time and it may well actually outweigh the benefit during the kind of the early years of the patent. So that, I guess that probably addresses the cost side of, of the UP and other things to bear in mind that have kind of been flagged as possible kind of downsides of the system is that the scope of the claims of the patent is going to be the same in all jurisdictions. Now obviously there can be some advantages to that in terms of consistency but actually having the same set of claims across all of all of the different jurisdictions might actually not be advantageous because it reduces the flexibility in having a pattern that might actually have better claims in certain jurisdictions that might often be the case under the existing system. And I think finally, it's probably worth saying that there's just a lack of certainty as to how the UPC will play out and the absence of any case law at the moment. So since there haven't been any cases heard at the UPC, it's not known how friendly it's going to be for patent owners as kind of I mentioned before and this is going to be established as the case law evolves over time and the, the system is effectively tested so I think opting key cases out at the early stage of the court may well be the approach that the people want to take for that reason. 
Yeah, no, thanks, Tom. And there's, of course, a whole host of factors which patent holders will be considering here as to whether to opt out. And it's going to be a big exercise for some in reviewing patent portfolios and including various considerations about the importance and potential strength or vulnerability of any particular patent, the key jurisdictions that are relevant to that particular patent, the costs involved in the respective systems, giving some thought to the front-loaded nature of the UPC actions, as well as the uncertainties of the new court and procedure. Okay, so now we've set the scene on the new system and the general pros and cons, let's think in more practical terms about how this will impact licensees and licensors to patent and know-how license agreements. Coming first to licensors, and back to you, Tom, what, what do they need to be thinking about? Yeah, thanks, Charlie. I think firstly, it's, it's worth mentioning that the UP system potentially risks a loss of license flexibility, and that's because the UP has to be licensed as a single right, and it's not possible to split it up between the countries that it covers. So it, it may well be that this results in a potentially more complicated licensing strategy. But taking a step back, I think as a licensor, it's likely that you're going to want to maintain a level of control over some of the new issues that are arising from the UPC. And focusing on a few of those particular issues, I think, as we've discussed, the risk of central revocation could lead to reduction or even loss of royalty payments. And that, that's going to be a concern to licensors who may prefer to have opted out certain national European patents as opposed to a UP at least in the short term, as we said, whilst the court established itself and the system's tested. Uh, and that's partly because many of the individual national courts are likely to be slower in revoking a national patents than the UPC might. So that would otherwise extend the royalty term. And also the individual national courts might actually reach different decisions. So there's going to be more scope to actually at least maintain patent protection and royalty streams in other national jurisdictions, even when you might lose protection in some of those countries. So I think for those reasons where control of the patent prosecution is in the hands of the licensee, which perhaps is more likely to be the case where you're looking at an exclusive license, then licensors may want to look at their license agreements to ascertain whether the licensee is actually required to consult with or seek approval on aspects of the prosecution, such as decisions on geographical coverage. So I think that's certainly going to be a consideration. I think following on from that and probably related as a related point, the, the licensee's ability to bring action and enforcement action, for example, it is going to be a key issue here. And it's worth reiterating that unless the licensing agreement provides otherwise, the, ex the exclusive licensee will be entitled to bring actions before the court under the same circumstances as the patent proprietor, so long as the owner is given prior notice. Now, Whilst that isn't necessarily uncommon um, in terms of other exclusive licenses for national patents, these rights are seen to be potentially more favourable to exclusive licensees than under national laws. And from a licensor and patent owner perspective, it's going to be crucial to consider and address these issues in the licence, which normally would be referred to as your conduct of claims provisions. And probably more often than not, the licensor is going to want to have some control to ensure that judicial actions aren't just commenced by, by a licensee without, without their kind of involvement or say so um, to avoid the adverse consequences of a licensee taking action unilaterally, as that potentially could put the patent at risk of global revocation action and the ability to opt out of the regime. So I think that's definitely going to be a key area in the agreements that parties are going to want to be particularly careful about in terms of compromising future actions, whereas before 
it perhaps would have been quite common to give an exclusive licensee those rights to just have the, that power to take enforcement action and to commence actions, then may give pause for thought, I think, when you're dealing with the EP. Yeah, totally agree, Tom. Thanks. Um, and Kate, on the other side of the offence, what are the most important considerations for a licensee? Yeah, thanks, Charlie. So one key issue relevant to licensees is the question of opting out of the new system. And although only the patent owner, owner themselves can actually opt a patent out of the UPC's jurisdiction, licensees will often have the principal interest in where and how that patent will be litigated. In extreme cases, we might see a licensee with particularly strong leverage in negotiations seeking a contractual provision, giving them a say as to whether the license, license patents are opted out of the UPC or not. However, this might not be appropriate in all cases. So more generally, licensees might wish to push for the license to include, as a minimum, a right to be consulted on the licensor's opting out decision where possible. The position ultimately reached in respect of opting out in each case will probably depend on whether the relevant patents are licensed on an exclusive or a non-exclusive basis. And this is because an exclusive licensee is more likely to require control over enforcement of the license patents, given that it alone can exploit these patents and potentially could incur the most significant losses in the event of a problem with them. And separately, where licenses relate to patent applications, another consideration for licensees relates to whether unitary patent designation is to be requested upon grant. And just to explain, once a European patent has been granted in the normal way, the option then arises for validation as either a bundle of national rights or as a new unitary patent. And as with opting out, the decision about whether to designate a, a patent as a bundle of national rights or as a UP will be taken by the patent owner, but naturally this will have a major impact on the licensees. And there are several relevant considerations here. For example, where the licensee operates throughout Europe, it may prefer to have a unitary patent to benefit from protection in many European countries for a limited cost. However, the risk of a global action for revocation against a UP, as Tom talked about previously, is potentially a downside for both parties to the license agreement. So in either case, licensees should be considering how to address this decision-making process at the outset of license agreement negotiations. And then finally, as for the right to commence proceedings, Tom mentioned earlier that an exclusive licensee has the right to take infringement action at the UPC unless the license agreement provides otherwise. On the other hand, a non-exclusive licensee may only commence proceedings at the UPC if the license specifically allows it to do so, which is unlikely given the reasons that Tom's already discussed. So on this basis, non-exclusive licensees might wish to consider including a provision in their license requiring a consultation before any infringement proceedings are started, if appropriate. Great. Yeah, thanks very much, Kate, for those points. Um, and just to wrap up, if Perhaps we'll just run through some key practical takeaway points from, from those discussions on the licensee license hall issues. Uh, first of all, remember that the licensee has no say in relation to opt-out unless this is provided for in the license. Secondly, an exclusive licensee has the right to take infringement action at the UPC unless the license provides otherwise. Although a non-exclusive licensee may only take action if the license specifically allows it. Thirdly, an infringement action taken by a licensee may affect the patentee's ability to opt a patent out or to withdraw the opt-out. In a situation where the patent is licensed to different licensees in different UPC participating member states, 
then action by one licensee may affect the others too, as all the designations must be opted out together. As a result of these points, the patentee and licensee may wish to consider including provisions in the license and also importantly revisit existing license agreements, which, especially if they're a bit older, are not likely to have been drafted to provide for these points, so may need to be amended now. In an order to, for example, exclude any right of the licensee to take infringement action without the consent of the patentee. Uh, allow the licensee some say in the question whether to opt out or withdraw any opt out. This is most likely to be relevant for exclusive licensees, as we've already discussed, um, and some element of consultation may be a good option here. Uh, providing for consultation before any infringement proceedings are started and potentially setting up a forum or some kind of mechanism for discussion of opt out issues with an agreed procedure for dispute resolution. A final point to note in the context of collaboration or joint development agreements, either new ones or also considering whether older agreements need to be amended, is that if um, unitary patents arising out of any collaboration are to be jointly owned, it's important to set out who will be listed as the first applicant or proprietor because for all of its life, that unitary patent will be treated as a national patent of the, of the participating member state where the first applicant has residence or place of business. So this is going to have consequences for any transactions involving the unitary patent in the future. Where no applicant is a resident or has a place of business in a state participating in the unitary patent, for example, possibly a, a US or a Spanish company, the unitary patent will be subject to the property laws of the state where the EPO has its headquarters, which is, of course, Germany. So with those takeaway points, that brings us to the end of this podcast episode. Thank you very much to the team, to Kate and Tom for joining me. And no thank you for listening. Um, we've covered quite a few topics in this podcast series, but if you would like to hear our thoughts on a particular point relating to patents and know-how licensing that we haven't covered, please do get in touch. Well, goodbye for now.